you um, of course your 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 phone is inoperable um, how did you how did you get and you were gonna spend the night unexpectedly at Zealand yeah how did you how did you get word to Kathy yeah. that you were okay well I got to the Zealand hut it was about five o'clock so it was pitch dark just about the time I opened the door um, I immediately told everybody uh, that I was in trouble um, that I had uh, got off track and uh I need I needed to get in touch with my wife. It was one of the first things I told them because she was going to be at home worrying. Hello there podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in frigid Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you follow the show, well, thank you very much, and also welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports. As an exercise physiologist, coach, race director, and athlete, told to the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Ken Young is my guest this week. As outdoor adventure resumes go, he's in rarefied air, literally. His first registered hike was Mount Washington and Mount Jefferson in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in June of 2000. Six years later, he would stand atop the 14,411-foot Mount Rainier in Washington State. That trip kicked off a short but incredibly memorable mountaineering phase of his life that saw him climb some of the highest peaks in the world, including four of the seven summits. In part one of this two-part episode, we chat about why he got into the sport of hiking, his transition to mountaineering, and his experience on Mount McKinley in May of 2011 a tragic month that saw seven climbers die. Well, here he is, Ken Young. Ken, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Chris. Great to be here. It's good to see you, my friend. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Real good. Um, yeah, you and I just, we, we don't, we don't have the opportunity to, uh, to cross paths much, uh, anymore. Uh, seems to me that, uh, <laughs> you're 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 equally as busy as you were uh when you were uh still full-time at the restaurant just in a different kind of busy um uh, but staying busy nonetheless oh yeah i you know i've got a greenhouse and i got a backyard and you know i work out and i have my mountains and i have my wife who is my biggest supporter and in everything that i do and uh, I couldn't do anything without her, my wife, yeah, Kathy. Yeah, um, no doubt. Uh, you know, as you and I get to talking a little bit, um, uh, 
while while she may not specifically be be mentioned in all of these stories, the truth is um, that it is because of Kathy that all of these stories have the opportunity to take place. Would you say that's true? Oh, there's no question. I mean, she is my biggest supporter. I mean, she doesn't, she, you know, she does it quietly, but it, all of a sudden, it, you know, there'll be a time and she really says one sentence and you can tell that she supports me 110%. Um, she, does that mean she's not concerned? Yeah, she's always concerned when I go hiking and because uh, I've done a lot of hiking solo. Um, she, she does worry a lot at home, but I try to do the best I can to, uh, ease that. Uh, yeah. And we're, we're going to talk about, uh, some of those experiences. In fact, let's, uh, let, let's, let's start this way. So, um, recently uh, I, I read two books from author Ty Gagne, uh, who I, I know you're familiar with that, and the two books I'm sure you're, you're, you're very familiar with the last traverse and where you'll find me. Right. Right. Those two book, those two books by by Ty Gagne, um, and and these two stories uh, for the listener who's not familiar with them, these two stories illustrate the dangers uh, of winter hiking uh, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Uh, you recently had a fairly harrowing experience of your own in the White Mountains. Uh, you want to tell us about it? Well, you know, um, I think. To start with on this, I, I think um, in anything that people do, um, there's always an opportunity for all of us to get a little bit complacent. Uh, that said, I try to keep my eye on that. And, you know, when I put my pack together and go out for the day uh, on a trek, I try to pack everything that I think I'm going to need. Um, but the biggest thing all of us need, no matter what we do, is we need to be mentally prepared for anything that happens. Um, and I've said all along, hiking for me, you know, my business in a restaurant, I mean, you have to be mentally tough, uh, mentally ready to to do what any one of us does. I mean, Chris, you work out, you, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already understand yourself. Uh, the, the activities that you've gotten into, it's the same thing. If, if, you know, you can be physically ready for anything, but if you're not mentally ready, you're going to fail. Um, so this trip, I had met some good friends at, uh, the, uh, Crawford notch to climb, for me, it was going to climb Field and Wiley with those folks and then stop my bushwhack down to Westfield and Whitewall in uh, the call area in between those first two peaks. I had started climbing up with a group and I looked at my, I kept looking at my watch and, you know, some of those folks weren't as, you know, in shape or, uh, you know, they were just, they're just starting out hiking the 48, 4,000 footers, you know. It takes a long time to mentally get physically fit, mentally fit, and do these in a timely manner. So, you know, I, I for me, I, I was up against the clock. So I eventually told uh, a good friend of mine, Denise Stasis, that is a, a tremendous uh, 
uh, hiker in the whites. Uh, she has a lot of a big resume. Um, I said, hey, Denise, I got, I got to move on. And she understood. And so I took off on my own, saw them on the way back from field. Uh, I mean, Wiley, excuse me. And then I bushwhacked down towards Westfield. Um, I'm going to guess, because I, I didn't measure this out uh, before this studio appointment. I, but I, I would say West, Westfield was about a mile too uh, from the call area. And then I was going to bushwhack to Whitewall. Well, in the process, my apparatus that I use a lot, my phone, uh, was getting wet, you know, bushwhacking. It was kind of warm that day. Plus you're going through trees that have snow on them. And, you know, this is the mentally tough part. You have to, you got to deal with being wet and cold. Um, it's not easy. Uh, a lot of work. Uh, you're in snow, heavy snow sometimes. And uh, long story short, uh, my phone went dead. And uh, the battery just died on it. Um, so I was had to rely on my map and compass, which is great uh, if you know where you are. And I, I basically, the, the, I, I'll say right off the top, the mistake I made uh, in this whole story is that I, when I knew that I did not have my phone anymore, I should have taken everything off my pack, taken my map out, taken my compass out and just took two, three, four minutes and really make a solid decision. And that's the mistake I made. I didn't make a solid decision. I made the easy decision which was, okay, a new AZ trail was in front of me. Uh, I'll, ju I'll just take a north bearing because I knew I'd run right into it. And uh, instead of, I had other options. And I, I didn't think of them because I didn't take the time to think of them. So that is a lesson learned. So now I put my phone in a Ziploc baggie to keep it dry and also... <laughs> Look, when next time you, you have an issue like that, stop and think. Think everything out, all your options. Um, so I, I started trekking towards the AZ trail. Well, the AZ portion that I was trekking to does not see a lot of winter use um, because it's on the other side of the Tom Field and Wiley range. People just don't go that way in the winter. I mean, they do, but it's very rare and and for me they just we just had two storms so um uh, long story short again i lost faith that i uh had already seen the trail and didn't realize it and i'd gone by it so what happens when that when you you sense that well i don't know where i am you know, I, the, the AZ trail was going to solidify where I am. And it didn't happen. So now I'm losing faith. Okay. And you're, and you're also losing daylight. And I'm also losing daylight. Correct. I mean, I had a headlamp and stuff, but hey, listen, when you're on a bushwhack, the last thing, and I've talked to other people that bushwhack too, the last thing you want to do bushwhacking is be out there with a headlamp. <laughs> Okay. okay. Agree. All, right. All right. So especially in the winter, 
Um, also agree. So um, I really started to buckle down. I, I got to a certain point. I, I, I knew that also the trail, there was another trail. Uh, so I was heading north of the AZ. I knew another trail was more west as well. So I started leaning a little west as well. See if I could run into it there. And I, all of a sudden, I just like, I, I didn't panic. You know, panic is, there's no way I panicked. I think if I panicked, I wouldn't be here. Uh, but I, I just lost faith in, oh boy, where the heck am I? Where am I? I can't find AZ. I'm not running into that other trail. So I buckled down. I, I saw two pine trees that look like Christmas trees, if you will. And I said, you know, that's good. That is good protection from the deep cold. It'll hit the tree limbs first. I was going to cut some tree limbs off and make like a bed. Uh, I had a saw and stuff. I, I mean, I had a lighter. I don't know if I could have started a fire. One thing I learned too is I've got to get fire starters as well. Do a little study on that soon and get that in my pack as well. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I couldn't start a fire because I had two lighting devices, but you just never know. Um, anyway, uh, so I started rearranging my pack for staying out overnight. And Ken, uh, approximately, so, so of course, this is, this is January, mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, number of daylight hours are much shorter approximately what time in the afternoon was this was was this after 3 p.m after 4 p.m no 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 uh when i when i started thinking about buckling down for the night because remember you need time to prepare yourself i mean you don't want to wait till it's pitch dark and it's real cold because i i have been on a rescue which you know with your your dad jim dunn um many years ago and let me tell you something, when you're in the woods at night and, and I think, I think, I think that was in February with your father. Unbelievable. I mean, we didn't get out of the woods till one in the morning. I tell you, that was the coldest night I've ever been in the whites. And it's just because you don't have any mobility. Uh, it's winter time uh, and it's cold at elevation. Uh, it's, it's just brutal. So, all those things are going through my mind, Chris. Mm, right. You know, two people just passed away up in Lafayette Ridge. And that was going through my mind like, oh, my God, I'm going to be the third one. That Here I, you know, yeah, the things that go through your mind when you're in a situation like this, it, it, you have no clue until you're in it. I mean, I had no clue until I was in it. And it wasn't, it wasn't good. Um, uh, so, so I went back, once I got my pack ready, I looked at my watch and go to your point. I'm sorry. I kind of went by what you were saying. I think Chris, it was around two 30 okay. to three. I had, I had about an hour and a half to two hours of daylight, but you know, I'm still not knowing where I am. So I know that's going to take time. So I was preparing myself mentally. See, like I said, you can deal with anything if you're mentally prepared. And I did do that right. I mentally prepared myself to stay out overnight. It wouldn't have been the best. It may not have been a good decision, 
but mentally I was ready. Okay. And that's to me, half the battle. If you're going to, if you're going to get through anything. So all of a sudden I, I looked at my watch. I said, geez, I still have a lot of time here. I can't just stay here. So I, I went to what I've always done when I've gotten trouble in the past. And, you know, I've been in trouble. It, it, this is little trouble, you know, short term, few minutes. Uh, where you, you don't know if you're on a trail or not. And the rule is always follow your footsteps back until you know where you were. So that's what I started doing. And when I did that, I came into an opening. And because I was going in the opposite direction, I look to my right and there's Z cliff. Thank the Lord. I said, I took out my map. I kind of looked and said, I knew that I was north of Z cliff. Uh, well, northeast of Z cliff. I estimated it. I saw the Zealand hut, which I knew was open. I took a bearing at 280 and I just took off. You, I think right there is I had an adrenaline rush. Like I probably never had in my life. And I just took off because I knew time was still of essence. And, and just because I saw Z cliff, I had, I still didn't know how far it was going to, or how long it was going to take me to get to my destination, which was safety. Because you, you were, you were still bushwhacking at this point. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm in the middle of, yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm in the middle of the woods. In, but, in the winter, in the winter time. And so obviously that, you know, that slows your rate of travel quite considerably yeah depending you know yeah yeah is i mean i was in snow jesus i'm trying to remember i've done too many hikes since then chris uh i think uh, i think i was breaking down through the the crust again you know we've had a lot of warm weather it, which makes it hard you know when you break through a crust and then go into powder underneath it's hard work to to uh to uh, take each step. And so really the adrenaline kicked in for me, Chris, and, and you could probably help me a little bit better with this as I tell the story about the adrenaline piece, because you, you have physically, uh, you know more about the body than I do. But uh, so I eventually got down to Ethan Pond Trail, which then I knew exactly where I was. And I, I just, Chris, I, you know, I'm an emotional guy. I was, pretty close to tears when you when you got to Ethan Pond Trail yeah because I mean in that moment did that generally equate to safety and more yes. importantly your ability to get out and 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 get home yes so you know uh and what I meant by the adrenaline rush is that all of a sudden once I realized <laughs> that I thought I'd be okay you know adrenaline starts to seep out right and then I started cramping. It was unbelievable. My body just started cramping. So I was still in trouble. I still had to get to the Zealand hot. So I did stop. I drank as much as I could. Uh, I think actually I might've eaten a bar as well. Um, you know, I, I took my pack off and everything. I mean, I, I did stop for two or three minutes. I mean, my stops are fast. They always are. I do everything I'm supposed to do two or three minutes and I'm off and going, but, um, uh, it was tough going. It was slow because, you know, I'd go 10, 20 feet and I was breaking through the snow and it was, 
all of a sudden I start cramping a little bit. Now you got to erect your leg, you know, to try to stretch that, you know, ha hamstring or whatever calf or whatever's cramping at the time. And then I got on to the main trail up to the Zealand hut and it's like 0.3 miles from that junction, but you got to go up 400 feet. It was like, uh, that was the hottest 400 feet I think I've done in a long time just because I was spent. I was emotional. Uh, I was cramping. Um, it was pretty enlightening experience. And I, you know, um, as much as I'm disappointed in how I performed that day and knowing that I never want, I, I've always preached to never get yourself into that situation. But at the end of the day, a good friend of mine, Denise Stasis, again, she told me, Kenny, your experience is what got you to the Zealand hut. So yeah. When you, um, of course your, your, your phone is inoperable. Um, how did you, how did you get And You were going to spend the night unexpectedly at Zealand. Yeah. How did you, how did you get word to Kathy yeah. that you were okay? Well, I got to the Zealand hut. It was about five o'clock. So it was pitch dark. Just about the time I opened the door. Um, I immediately told everybody uh, that I was in trouble. Um, that I had uh, got off track. And uh, I, need, I needed to get in touch with my wife. It was one of the first things I told them because she was going to be at home worrying. And uh, thank God that uh, he had a call. They have those. Uh, you might be able to help me with this, Chris. Stat phones, uh, satellite phones. Yeah, sat phones. Um, and so they they can only call a, at a certain time. And I think his time was 7 in the morning and 5 o'clock at night. And I got there just before 5. So I gave him uh, my wife's information, and uh, that information went to Pinkham Notch and uh, people at Pinkham. Got a hold of my wife to let her know that I was okay. It was a tough night, for sure. Um, was there was there ever was there ever a moment when you finally made it to Ethan Pond Trail, and you knew exactly where you, where you were? Was there ever a moment in, that crossed your mind that you were going to attempt to hike out? Or at that point, were you no. 100% you were going to have to, you were, you needed to get to the, to, the, to the hut? I needed to stay at the hut. There's no way I physically, I don't think I had it in me. I think um, the adrenaline rush for two hours or so just burned my body. And plus, you know, I've been out there since 8 o'clock in the morning. Mm. Um, but wow, you know, two, two, two faithful or fateful 
well, either way, either faithful or fateful, two fateful decisions that ultimately um, uh, resulted in you being okay. One was to double back. And in doubling back, you uh, spotted Z Cliff and knew that you had a safety. Uh, the other fateful decision was once you, once you, once you knew you were found, in other words, you were on Ethan Pond trail, the decision not to attempt to hike out, but to get to shelter. Um, I mean, don't, don't you, don't you believe that those two decisions, you know, played, played a big part in you and you being able to make it home? Uh, Wow. The decision also to carry a map and a compass. Well, for, for, for sure. And we'll, we're going to talk, of course, we're going to be talking much more about, uh, about your, your, most current endeavor, uh, bushwhacking, um, which is which is very much a heavy map and compass activity. We'll talk more about that um, in in just a moment. Um, uh, wow, um, what a what a, what an amazing story! And and you know, I think you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you know this story really highlights um, the perils. Of, of being in the whites uh, in the wintertime. Uh, I mean, truth is you, you, you got yourself in a predicament um, below treeline. I mean, a lot of the times we think about, you know, the, the extraordinary dangers of winter hiking above treeline, but truth is uh, that you can get yourself in a bind um, even below treeline. I was at um, 3,100 feet. Yeah. And, when and all it, that stuff happened. Right. In other words, it, it, the margin the margin is really thin in yeah. the winter time. And you, and I know, and obviously I, I know that you know that, but for, but for the listener to, to understand that. Well, that Alan Bernier that, that taught me how to bushwhack told me the margin of error in bushwhacking in the winter is zero. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's zero. I mean, because you are in, you know, it's one thing to be on a trail because the chances of, being found quickly or uh, other people being there to help you. If say you got an injury and, you know, halfway through your hike, it's a good opportunity. Somebody else might be on the trail, but when you're bushwhacking, uh, yeah, this, and I don't care if there's two people or three people, if somebody's injured or something, it's going to be a problem for all three uh, um, to be out overnight. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and particularly if your, uh, if your phone becomes inoperable, um, uh, as a bushwhacker, I mean, by definition, you are off trail, which suggests, um, that if you need to be located, uh, you become even more difficult to locate, you know, the proverbial needle in a haystack. Well, that's one reason why Chris, my wife had the itinerary. Okay. Of my hike. That's one reason why I backtracked that they would find me sooner Hmm. because I would be heading towards one of those peaks that I was going for. They would have been able to see my snowshoe tracks. Yeah. Um, And that was one reason why I backtracked. Yeah. And just just quick follow-up. You, you do not uh, use one of those spot trackers, one of those little satellite trackers, beacons that you, uh, that you put on your, on your person. uh, I have a Garmin Mini 2. All right. Um, and is that, is that, is that a, is that a locator? Is that, is that a, uh, a personal That's, a, that's a Garmin, you know, it's a satellite. It's used, you know, it's with satellite capability 
um, that you have an SOS that you can send out. In okay. fact, Chris, it was brand new. It's basically new. I, I had it with me and I hit the SOS button about four times, but I didn't, I didn't know how to use it right. Thank God, mm -hmm. because you have to lift the thing up and then press the button. <laughs> and I found that out after, uh, which is kind of good because I would add all kinds of people out looking for yeah. me. Um, and it's so that that's one of those uh, personal locator beacons that uh, is a one way signal. In other words, you you can only send the signal out. You can't get a message back um, from from Kathy or whoever. Correct. It's all, it's a one way communication. I can send I can send a message. Yes, you can send a message out, but you can't receive a message through correct. the device. Okay, got correct. it. Um, so again, again, that's a, a really interesting part to the story. You had one of them, um, it, you but but you really you hadn't had it for very long. No, so, it's almost brand new. I yeah, I, it, I yeah, really so didn't you, know how to use it. Yeah, you you which you is not good. I, I'm a preacher of, I don't care what you carry for equipment, but make sure you know how to use it. <laughs> and uh yeah uh um, Le lesson learned right yes yeah, yeah. It, it's a it's a it's a really an amazing story um so ken for for the listener who doesn't know ken young uh why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself well um uh, i'm 65 years old um i was born in Garnick, lived in dover all my life i still live in dover new hampshire um I, um, you know, went through the Dover school system, played football. That's where I met your father, Jim Dunn. Uh, he, he has been my mentor since high school days. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that in my life that uh, have impacted me, but I don't know if there's anybody that's impacted me as much as your father. Um, and a lot of different, for a lot of different reasons. Um, first of all, your dad was a teacher and, you know, I don't think he's ever lost that teacher mentality, old school, if you will. Uh, when he asks questions of you, he's really asking it, Well, no, he's really trying to, his question is, is formed in such a way to make you think. And that's the teacher mentality that he has. And he still has it today. Um, and I have so much respect for him. Uh, you know, uh, so anyway, that, so I started playing football uh, I, because all this hiking thing is kind of got threads the gym. Um, so I got out of, I, I went to postgraduate school at Bridgeton Academy after high school played football, a season of football there, went to UNH, um, got a, uh, degree in culinary arts. Um, from there, my dad owned a restaurant and I started working there full time. And in 1990, my dad retired, uh, retired. My wife and I bought the business and, um, um, I started hiking in 2000 with you because of your dad. Um, uh, I, I met him in the gym again, the original planet fitness downtown Dover. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, if anybody can still remember that. Um, and, uh, you know, 
Yeah, I, I, I've had a great life. Uh, have had a lot of. I think the reason behind that is because I've, I've been lucky to have been surrounded by such, you know, good people, and your your dad is one of them, and so I'm blessed that way, and I'm blessed with my wife and my family, and uh, my mom and dad were great. Uh, Kathy's mom and dad were great, so we're very lucky. Um, so, and you, um, you sold the restaurant Young's restaurant for anyone who's curious. A, I haven't a, sold it. I, uh, well, I got, I, I went out of business because of COVID. Uh, and then we, we've rented the space out to, uh, uh, clocks bistro. Fair. So, yep. Yeah. Fair. Thank you. Thank you for that, that clarification. Young's restaurant, of course, in, in Durham, New Hampshire. Uh, and when, uh, so that, that you said COVID. So that what was that 2019, Ken, or 2020? Oh, God. Jesus, awful, awful. The old news to me now. I know. Um, well, they closed us down on March 17th, whatever year that was. Was that 19 or 20? Yeah, okay. And um, I, uh, I kept watching the news every night, and I just looked at my wife, Kathy, and said, you know, none of this is looking good, and it's not looking good for a long time. Yeah, this and, is the beginning. Yeah, this is the beginning of the pandemic, and of course, restaurants right. were hit particularly hard. Well, I was sixty-three and a half, and I, you know, uh, six or eight weeks in, and uh, again, all those close people that surround me that are good friends, uh, I talked to every night. I had a friend of mine, uh, Frankie Unan, is uh, an absolute great friend. I talked to him almost every night and, you know, there's a lot of tears, man. And those phone calls, you know, he's from, he's in uh, New Jersey and uh, he helped me a lot to get through the thought process of what I could and couldn't do. And he was there to listen, just to listen uh, to begin with, um, you know, and I don't mean to, I, Chris, you know how I am. I, I, I look this, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that went through the same thing I did. So I, you know, I don't like to talk about myself much. Um, and, but for me, it was very emotional. I thought about my parents who were both passed, um, about the legacy of Young's restaurant and what I should do. What's the right decision. Oh my God. I mean, it was so emotional for, you know, it's, you know, when you think of life, it was a short, very, very short period of time, but, uh, it was a tough time. Uh, but you know, when we made the decision to get out, I think it was, you know, COVID really was a blessing in disguise at the end of the day for us. But at the time, the making the decision was, you know, unbelievably tough. Hmm. Um, but yeah, well, I'm glad I did it. Uh, like a lot of decisions I've made in my life, you make them, you turn the page and you move on. Yeah. Um, well, and, and you, you, as I sort of mentioned in the open, uh, you have um, most certainly kept yourself busy between uh, your family, uh, your greenhouse, uh, and of course, uh, your continued hiking passion. Let's talk Ooh. about that. Um, so your, your list of hiking related accomplishments is really quite, quite extraordinary. Not only have you completed some of the most impressive local hiking feats like the New Hampshire 500, New England 67, New England 100, and something called the grid, which we'll talk about in part two uh, of this podcast. 
but you've also stood atop some of the highest peaks in the world. Your first registered, and you mentioned this, you referenced this earlier, your first registered hike was June 2nd, 2000. Right. Um, and <laughs> I had asked you, I asked you this question I'm going to ask you, I had asked you before and, and, and it was, it was funny when, when I asked you that this question that I'm going to ask in a moment, I asked you, I asked you, what, what do you remember about that hike? And you kind of laughed and you said, I don't really, I don't, honestly, I don't remember much about it. So, uh, you know, I thought about that though, Chris. Okay. All right. So and okay. I'm sure I went with your father. Okay. Well, you, you, you did. And, and, and in fact, um, I, so when you told me you didn't remember much about that Jefferson, Washington Jefferson hike, um, I actually asked, I asked my dad, I said, what do you remember about that hike? So, oh, God. so I, I got it from his perspective. Oh, boy. Um, but, so this'll be funny. What, <laughs> what do you, <laughs> cause what he remembers about it and what you remember about it, maybe okay. two different things, but what do you remember about Zero. that first hike? Zero. Okay. All right. The only so thing he, is, I think I, I thought about this though, Chris, <laughs> I, I, I'm almost willing to bet that your father decided to do that hike with me, the first one, to make a huge statement on how awesome the mountains can be. True. Jefferson and Washington, I'm sure it wasn't raining. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cause I'm a, I'm a fair weather guy. Okay. I don't try to get out there in bad weather too often. Okay. I have, but it's usually, I didn't plan it that way, but uh, I'm sure that Jim went on a bluebird day and, but I get so blurred Chris, because I've seen so many beautiful things on Washington and Jefferson over the years. Especially, I finished the grid on Jefferson. Yes, and it was the most beautiful day I've ever had in the White Mountains. I I couldn't have celebrated, and I did it solo, like I did so many of my hikes. Uh, I had some people that wanted to join me, and I told them, you know what? I said I've been doing most of this journey by myself. I said I want to continue to do that. Um, I know I had a huge celebration and screaming at the top of Jefferson, but it was the most beautiful beautiful day in april uh well tons of snow tons of blue sky no wind i had a t-shirt on i was getting a sunburn this is unbelievable well I, I there's no doubt um that uh he probably selected washington and jefferson as yeah. your first experiences in the whites um to not only show and demonstrate to you the beauty and the majesty of uh, of the white mountains but he probably also did it too to teach you a little bit of a lesson a lesson about respect specifically respecting respecting the white mountains i mean those are those are those are two of the uh, of the more sort of prominent peaks uh yeah. in in the white mountains there they are jefferson's hard to get to no matter what time of year no 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 question so when i asked him about it i said what do you remember about about ken that day oh and, boy here we and go. he laughed and then he told this story um <laughs> He, and I, I, I can't recall, and I'm not sure. Well, he, he, he probably recalls. I can't recall exactly who, who else he said went that day. Okay. But there was a small party, maybe three yeah. or four, and yeah. you were, and you were one of those. And what he said was, um, he said at some point, Ken, Ken just took off, right? Uh, 
probably for any number of reasons, um, you know, uh, summit fever is, is always a, is always a thing, right. Particularly for, for first time hikers, right. This, this urge and urgency to get to the summit. Uh, he said, so, so Ken kind of took off, he said, and at some point, um, he, he got to a fork and he went right and he, and, but he was supposed to go left. And so he went right. All right. And, 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 and by the time he made it to the, to the ridge, and realized he had to cross the ridge back toward we were going. He said, I looked up and I could see him on the ridge. And he was and he was going right. slowly in the same direction we were going. And at some point intersected uh, my dad uh, and yeah. the rest of. Well, yeah. Crew. Well, first of all, he's got the wrong story, but that's OK. Uh, <laughs> but that is a story that is true. It's just the wrong hike. Uh, but he is right about that. that. That is a good learning experience. I did get ahead of that group. It was in the winter. I started in the summer, Chris. So just remember that. Uh, so he, but he is right about the winter hike going to Jefferson. Uh, I did get a high, I, you know, it, I was, you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I have to go back and look how many years in two or three, maybe four years in of my hiking career in the whites. And, uh, yeah, he, I, I was totally wrong. I, I, it was what, one of my first big learning lessons. And, um, uh, you know, it fe I, I feel bad about this and I've said this to your father, you know, there was a gentleman that was with us that always hiked with Jim and stuff. He never hiked with Jim after that day. And I'll never forget that. I, I feel like I'm totally to blame for that because he ripped me a new one at Edmund's call going up to Jefferson when, when I, that happened. He ripped me one. And I didn't know him that well. He's a doctor out of Massachusetts. And, but at the end of the day, Chris, the guy was right. I was wrong. And it, I learned you got to stay with your group and you got to be a team and no matter what happens, you work together and get to the summit. Or if the summit doesn't look good, you get together, you turn around and go to safety. Hmm. So for me, that was a big learning experience. That's what I think Jim is talking about. Cause if, if I remember right, we're on walkie talkies. Hey, Kenny, I, cause I was lost. <laughs> and Kenny goes, Hey, Kenny, just, just walk towards the sun. <laughs> just go towards the sun. That's exactly. So I, I'm on. Yeah, and that's that, exactly that's, the story he tells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but it wasn't the first hike, though, Chris. He's got that wrong, okay, brother. He just wanted to get that one in. <laughs> so, Ken, why, why, why did you? You, we, we talked about sort of how you got started in in hiking, but uh, what, what was your why? Well, because I, I was an athlete. I. Uh, and I was a physical athlete, if you will. I mean, I, 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 I played football. I loved it. Uh, I love the physicality. Uh, I, I love the hard work that it takes to achieve anything that you try to do in a sport or an activity. And, um, you know, I, I bought the business in 1990. Hey, I was a smoker until... 1987, I smoked Marlboro Lights, if I remember right. And, um, you know, when I quit, I, I stopped going to the bars. You know, it, it, it went hand in hand, right? Beer, smoke. 
beer smoke. So, you know, when I decided to stop smoking, I had to stop drinking. So uh, I didn't go out with all my buddies that I had made. And that was a tough thing for me. But I, it was the right thing for me. I, it's the best thing I ever did was quit smoking. I mean, how, how many years is that? 23 and 13, that's 36 years ago. And uh, so we bought the business in 1990. I didn't do anything but work, Chris, for 10 years. I didn't do anything physical. I didn't do anything in the gym. I tried to run and then I quit because, you know, like anything, you don't feel good about any activity unless you stick with it. And uh, so in 2000, I, I went into Planet Fitness. I saw your father in there and we just got going and and I told him why I was back in there because the business was just killing me. And uh, that's when I started hiking with him. It was the you, best thing ever happened to me, you, hiking with your dad. Yeah, your dad you, is great. You were, you were in your early 40s at that time, roughly speaking? No, 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 no. Uh, we bought the business in, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Chris, yeah, you're 20, right. I, yeah, 20, I'm thinking 20. about when I bought the the restaurant. No, yeah. no, no. When no, in 2000 when you started hiking, yeah. right? If I'm right. if I'm doing the math, I was right, 43. You okay, yeah, you were you were in your early 40s. So you're in your early 40s and um you're 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 looking for something active uh to do uh to 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 sort of to nurture that physical part of you to, um I mean there had to have been sort of health motivations too, right? To try to be as, as fit and healthy as you could possibly yeah, that, be. That was the, it, I, I yearned for physicality. I don't mind huffing and puffing. You know that from when I did that, uh, what is it? The, what was it? That yeah, the, the, put, the wild, the wild man biathlon. No, 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 no. When I did that thing at your house there with the bicycle, what was I doing? The heart rate. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you, you couldn't believe it when I, I was doing like 170 and I sustained it for like, I don't know how many minutes, but that's right. That's right. Uh, but that's, but that's me. I mean, that's, that's what I like. That's, that's what I thirst for that. And so the physicality of almost anything like just doesn't bother me. I, I, I mean, it hurts, it hurts sometimes, but, uh, it's what I like. Um, yeah. So, I got to tell you this, though, Chris. Uh, you know, I I did a little little studying today just yeah. before we got on. Right. You know, my first five years of hiking, I did sixty-five hikes in five years, one hundred and thirty-two peaks. The second five years, so now we're up to ten, right? But the second five, I did seventy-eight hikes and one hundred and twenty-four peaks. So just about the same, right? Very close. Take a look at the next five years. I did, um, okay, let's not get lost here. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, so the third the, th the third five years, uh, the, well, so year 10 to 15, yep. I still, I did 76 hikes. Now, I didn't count out how many peaks I did. But look at this, the, la uh, the fourth, so year 15 to 20, which I've been hiking now, what, 23 years. Right. I did 
345 hikes. Okay. Now, thinking about that, okay, I count my hikes like there's a lot of the, you know, I'll do multiple hikes in the same day. I count them as individual hikes. Mm -hmm. The only ones I, like if I do four peaks and one hike, that's one hike. But like Wombat and Cabot, that's two separate hikes. So I, I count that as two. But then, so the 500 kind of gets into that, but 345 hikes. So from year 2020 to now, I've already done 268 hikes. Yeah. And we're, and, and we're going to, yeah, we're going to talk about the acceleration here. Right. Um, right. But, but, but to your point, um, uh, quite an extraordinary uh, level of consistency in that first decade. And that's, that's kind of where I want to focus here uh, for a few yeah. minutes. And I want to talk sure. about that, that, that first decade uh, from, from uh, well, from, really the first 15, uh, yeah, first 15 years or so. Um, uh, and, 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 and how you sort of relatively quickly, um, went from, uh, day hiking in the whites to standing atop some of the highest peaks in the world. I want to talk about that before we do that though. I want, let me, let me quickly circle back for, uh, for the listener. Okay. Um, as I want the listener to understand how you and I know each other. So, uh, as I was thinking about that, I think it's probably safe to say that um, uh, we have known each other for almost the entirety of my life, at least since I was a little kid. And it's likely you knew me before I knew you, meaning this. Um, uh, you mentioned that you played football at Dover High School. My dad, uh, uh, my dad, Jim, uh, coached there. My dad coached you specifically. Um, I would, as a kid, I would tag along at football practice. Uh, and so while I didn't necessarily know all the players by name, uh, you undoubtedly as a player would have recognized the Dunn boys running around at practice. So you probably knew who I was Chris, before I actually Chris, had a chance I'm to interrupt you. you. Chris. Yeah. Okay. I coached with your father. So that meant I had meetings at your house and I saw you and Jay at your house when you guys were wicked young. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I remember you too. I remember this too. I remember your brother, Jay. I, I coached him at little green and that little rascal at the time, you put a helmet on him and his eyes just went <laughs> like, he was like, uh, what, what's the next thing I'm going to hit? I mean, uh, and then obviously you were at high school at that time. And, um, you know, I was coaching at the junior high level. So I was connected and watched you play football and stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of connection there between uh, myself and your family. No yes. question about it. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, uh, we we go back a very, very long time. I look and at your father like a, a a big uncle to me. Yeah, well, he, he's it, like family to me. Yeah, and um, uh, I mean, interestingly enough, you and I both had the opportunity to play for him. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, interestingly enough, um, 
both myself and my dad actually had the unique opportunity to coach you. Um, uh, you and I worked together briefly um, yes. uh, uh, in, a, in a coach athlete role a number of years ago. Of course, as I mentioned before, you had the opportunity to play for my dad. Um, so anyway, suffice to say uh, for the listener to understand that uh, our history goes back uh, 40 plus years. We've, we've known each other for a a very, very long time. Um, so, uh, you, 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 you mentioned my, my father as being, um, as, as being a mentor sort of, you know, generally a a life mentor, if you will. Um, uh, but, but Ken, who were some of your other early hiking mentors? Oh my God. I don't have any. Um, really? So my, 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 my no, dad the was, only, the only, the, yeah, your dad was everything. I mean, uh, we hiked together for a long time and he taught me so much about how, and I try to tell people, uh, the right and wrong way to hike the white mountains. And also, uh, you know, when there was tragedies, no matter where they were in the world and the whites, anywhere else your father and I would hike and that's all we talk about was the tragedy and try to reason it out what we should have done what we could have done and that's why this problem I had when I was I I got disoriented in the whites and ended up at the Zealand hut all that came back to me like you have to all those things that Jim said you had to think about and I, I did make mistakes, um, but it a, a lot of that came back, and it's because I had experience about, you know, uh, studying it. It it wasn't just it wasn't just okay. You got to do this and that. We really studied the ramifications about just about any decision that you make in the white in in, in the mountain. Ken, in, in March of 2006, you started mountaineering, uh, yeah. which, which which you did for approximately a decade. Your first mountaineering trip uh, was to the summit of the 14,411-foot Mount Rainier in Washington State. Um, for the listener, um, you know, we, we sort of throw around the terms hiking and mountaineering, um, and there is a there is a there is a distinction with a difference. Um, uh, for the listener, um, can you uh, can you give the listener your your thoughts about the difference between hiking and mountaineering? Uh, well, just so the listener understands, I have no experience. Uh, you know. Uh, doing extensive rock climbing or ice climbing or anything like that. So when we're talking about mountaineering, we're talking about glacial um, uh, uh, travel uh, versus, and also, you know, like Kilimanjaro and Aconcagua aren't really considered glacial. Uh, So, but it's still mountaineering because you're at such a high altitude. Um, so uh, the difference really is, uh, well, there's, there's a lot, 
actually there's a lot of differences. Yeah, but... well, let me, well, let me, maybe let me phrase, let me, let me, okay. let me phrase it a little bit, a little bit more precisely for you. Um, from a technical standpoint, from a technique standpoint, wh what are some of the, what are some of the more advanced mountaineering or climbing techniques um, that you, uh, that you, that you needed to learn in order to take the step up from hiking in the whites to hiking Mount Rainier, for instance. Oh God, a, it's, there's so much stuff. Oh, yeah, well, get, well, I mean, just give give us a give us a couple of exa examples of some. Well, first of all, you, you know, you got to learn to rope in, you know, because you're roped up as a team. Okay, so uh, so use of so, use of ropes, climb climbing ropes and climbing. Yeah, where, where in the White Mountains, there's no need of ropes. Okay, for the most part, and so people that hike just uh, exclusively in uh, uh, the Adirondacks or you know, up in Maine and Baxter or, you know, typically most of the time, I mean, there, I'm sure that, that's why I said about ice climbing and, and rock climbing, uh, there could be ropes in, uh, involved with that, obviously. Uh, but typically when you're hiking, you know, your typical 48, you don't need to be roped up. Uh, rest step is huge. I still do that today at the White Mountains. Uh, that, that helps you not burn your legs. And, uh, you know, you might be a little slower than the average, uh, if you will, New England hiker. But at the end of the day, my legs are going to be uh, in better shape than maybe some of the just trying to plow through an 8 or 10 or 12 mile hike. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, particularly a lot of a lot of that is in, in the winter with snowshoes and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, and breathing, um, uh, is huge. Um, you know, uh, it, it, there's a certain style of breathing that helps you, to, uh, climb at elevation. And, uh, it's, it's all a big lesson. And until you do it, you know, you, yeah. you're just never going to understand it until you go to a place like Rainier, yeah. uh, which would be a, 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 a good training ground for high altitude climbing. Yeah. Um, and what, what, what about a technique like uh, self-arresting? Is that, is that, oh, a yes. is that a technique that you, that you, that you needed a skill that you needed to acquire as you, as you, as you look to take on um, some of these, uh, some of these higher elevation peaks? Well, if you did a, if you did a five day uh, glacial training with a, in my case, it was RMI, which is Rainier Mountaineering. Um, they teach you all of that. They teach you how to rope up, how you're supposed to be a team in ropes, how to self-arrest, um, how to breathe, how to rest step, um, you know, talk about diamox, uh, all kinds of things to help you, uh, get through the, uh, uh, cause I, I'll tell you one of the things I've learned in my uh, climbing is that even the guides don't feel good. I mean, at altitude, altitude's tough. It's mm. tough on everybody. Yeah. yeah. We're, and we're, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, uh, particularly about your, uh, ex experiences in, in Ecuador, uh, around, uh, acute mountain sickness. So, so suffice to say from a, from a technical standpoint, um, there is a, there's a significant difference, um, in some of the techniques and skills, 
associated with mountaineering versus hiking. Yes. And 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 you also yes, make yes. the point too that there are there are clinics, uh, mountaineering clinics uh, that are held uh, that 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 allow you the ability to to gain and gather those skills. But Chris, is one big thing we didn't talk about is a huge difference in equipment. Yeah. Well, actually, that was going to be part two of of, yeah. of my more more precise question. Correct. So yeah, from and and again, you know, just briefly from an equipment standpoint, uh, Ken, what's, what, what, what are, what are some of the more obvious, uh, differences in equipment, uh, hiking, day hiking versus mountaineering? Like, what do you, what are you carrying on your person when you're mountaineering that you might not, uh, if you're day hiking in the wild? Well, for, for me anyway, I mean, I think this is pretty much true for everybody. I mean, I, I have what they call a rigid mountaineering boot uh plastic boot uh where you know in the whites i i just wear a, a leather insulated boot can't get away with that at elevation um you need to have uh, a rigid boot so that you can i use step in crampons um uh, uh people don't realize you know from hiking in the whites most of the time when you're on big mountains you're you're in crampons you know you don't do snowshoes Snowshoes were off at Denali at uh, 11,000 feet. From 11,000 feet to the summit, you were in crampons the whole way. Um, the same with Aconcagua, um, Elberez. Elberez, I don't even think I brought snowshoes with me uh, on the plane. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, Chris, high altitude climbing is a huge learning curve. Uh, it was for me anyway, and maybe, maybe it isn't for certain people, but for me, it was a huge learning experience. Um, but one that I enjoyed thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good and yeah. bad. I mean, I, I've had, you know, I've had some bad experiences yeah. on big mountains. Um, yeah, let's, yeah. So I, I, I want to, I want to get into this, uh, um, this nine or so year period in which you were mountaineering, but let me, let me quickly double back and ask you this. What, what inspired you to take up mountaineering? What inspired you to sort of take that leap uh, and make that jump from uh, from hiking uh, up to mountaineering? What, what, what was the inspiration? Your father. I mean, he, he'd been out with Keating to uh, Mount Rainier and uh, he discussed the challenges that they went through. I think, if I remember right, uh, you, you, your dad would know better, but I think I had just started hiking and Jim and Keating that this is a good friend of Jim, your dad's uh, had just come back from Mount Rainier. So that had been around 2000, somewhere in there. And, you know, the stories and stuff just got me going and, and stuff. And, uh, you know, your brother Jay was involved with, uh, still climbing at the time. And, uh, your dad and I first went out to Whitney. Actually, we went out to Mount Whitney, uh, and climbed there. And that you want to talk about me being sick. I, I have never been, yeah, you can say I was sick in Ecuador. I was never more sick than I was at Whitney. Whitney was bad. I was really sick with altitude sickness. And, uh, but then, you know, it turned around, you know, Jay wanted to do Ecuador. Um, Jim wanted the challenge. I started to tag along, but obviously before I could do that, I had to get the uh, 
uh, uh, uh, glacial training, which I did at Mount Rainier. So that was the stepping ground for everything after that. Yeah. Um, and, and so then, and then, so then j just a two short years later, um, you, um, you went from, um, uh, climbing, uh, Rainier to, uh, climbing Cotopaxi in Ecuador, uh, Cotopaxi, uh, at just over 19,000 feet. This was July of 2008. Uh, you, you, you talked about Whitney, uh, being a really challenging experience, uh, from an, an altitude sickness standpoint. Um, but altitude sickness dogged you a little bit in, uh, in Ecuador as well. Oh, yeah. Um, how did you, uh, what, what was that like? And, and, and how did you deal with that, uh, in, in Ecuador? All right. So Ecuador, the interesting thing about Ecuador is we did some acclimatizing hikes, which were fine. I, I, you know, I, I felt some effects of the altitude, which, you know, most of it's breathing and so on and so forth. I mean, it changes. I mean, you're, you're breathing mechanism just it's different um and um i did okay if i remember well with the acclimatizing hikes i think they're around fourteen thousand or fifteen thousand feet uh but then the thing about codepoxy you drove up in a bus with all your equipment in bags at 14.4 i think it was something like that so they drop you off at a bus about 2,000 feet or 2,500 feet below the glacier in a parking lot, which is kind of, you know, when you think of big mountains, you know, that's kind of, you know, you just don't expect that. So we hiked from 14.4 to uh, the cabin at 15.2 or 5, right? I can't remember exactly. And Going along, no problem. I get to the hut within 20 or 30 minutes after I got to the hut. I am, oh my God, I am not doing well. I am not doing well at all. I, I am feeling like crap. And uh, next thing I know, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach. And uh, yeah, it, it was another learning experience for me. I, I But... One thing I learned in Ecuador that was valuable for the rest of my high altitude climbing is that if given enough time, you can get through altitude effects if you're not feeling well. You just have to do the right things. And I'll give you an example. Cotopoxy is an example. I went to my lead guide, Mike Walter, who is just an amazing, amazing uh, guide and, and climber. I, I said, Mike, you know, I, I'm feeling, I, Chris, you have to understand. I was really sick. I mean, really, really sick. I said, Mike, what am I going to do? I mean, what going up tomorrow? He said, Kenny, bring your water bottle and your sleeping bag with you and just keep sipping water. And that's what I did. He said, don't drink a lot of water at one time. He said, just keep sipping it. Whenever you get a chance, keep sipping water. And that's what I did. And I'm going to tell you, and your father will tell you this, and Jay will tell you this. There was a gentleman, I can't remember his name. I think his name was Dave. He was from uh, Seattle, Washington. Of course, they, they climb bigger mountains out there than we have out here in the East Coast. 
And he was the strongest hiker all the way through. Well, I was the strongest hiker on Summit Day. And so but, but the reason I say that is he didn't feel well on Summit Day. He, he was strong all the way through when I was sick. And then he didn't feel well. Not that he was sick to his stomach because he wasn't. Uh, but he didn't feel right. And I felt great. So, like, my point being is you just have to persevere, stay focused, stay within the game, do, you know, and, and nothing, nothing is more important than experience at altitude, in my opinion. I mean, you can sit there and you can tell everybody to keep drinking water. You got to be able to sleep at night, you know, eat what you can and so on and so forth. You know what? Until you felt altitude sickness and stuff and everybody gets, can get it. You got to learn how to get through it. And boy, I've had, I've had plenty of opportunities to do that. Um, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it, it experiences the greatest teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a, there's a wonderful picture of you and my brother Jay and my dad Great picture. Uh, standing on the top of, of code epoxy. Um, Ken, what do you, what do you remember, uh, about that summit day? What do you, what do you remember about, about standing on the summit with, uh, I think with those Jay two guys? and your father were not doing that great. And, and I think your father was not doing well at all, but you know, your dad always has this, I don't know, you know what I'm talking about. He always has this positive or slinky way of, you know, kind of diverting his problem and he did the same thing that day but i can tell you he 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 was low on energy you know your dad has always had very low body fat and you know when you're hiking those big mountains i i mean i i've hiked two mountains i've lost 13 pounds your father can't do that because he has no body fat to lose 13 pounds. So if he does lose eight, nine pounds, boy, that's really, as you know, physically, that is going to take a toll. And I think that's what affected your dad that day. But you know what? He did it. And, and, and that's all that matters. And he was able to see that most beautiful summit I've ever been on. I mean, I've been on some beautiful summits. They're all beautiful. Uh, yeah, but I can tell you, code epoxy, is the most beautiful summit I have ever been on. Um, and I was, I was blessed to stand there and, and be arm in arm with your brother, Jay and, and Jim, my mentor, uh, and hiking. I I'll never forget that my whole life, my whole life. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool photo. My dad has that photo, uh, in his, in his TV room, very, very prominently displayed. Yep. Um, well that was 2008. Um, uh, can in a in a in a span of uh, well over the next six years, um, uh, specifically from 2010 to 2014, um, you climbed four of the seven summits: Kilimanjaro, uh, Denali, Aconcagua, and Elbrus. Um, Ken was was the original plan to climb all seven of the seven summits. I don't think so. I mean, uh, look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I want, I didn't want to do all seven summits, but the financial piece, I mean, it wasn't financially doable. 
Hmm. And I kind of knew that. I, I mean, I, for me, I just took the next summit. And, and I still do that today. Um, whether it's the New Hampshire 500, uh, the New England 100 highest. Uh, I, I just focus on what, what's tomorrow's summit I'm going to do. Yeah. So like for me, it was one after another. Uh, it seemed right for me. Uh, I did, I did, um, many people contacted me and said, you should try to get some sponsors and go to, to Everest and stuff. And I, you know, Chris, I'm not a salesman. I can't do that stuff. And, um, and, and I, I, I didn't feel right about taking other people's money to go get my challenge. I just, nah, I didn't seem right to me. Uh, but I'll, t I'll say this when I got done in Peru, I knew that I was ready to do just about anything. I, 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 I could challenge myself to just about anything at high altitude. I felt like I had a figured complete, I had a totally figured out. Mm. Um, um, and I'll, 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 I'll say this to your listeners. One of the big things I made a mistake on at high altitude is I drink coffee, right? So I've had problems with acute mountain sickness. So my stomach was always an issue. So I would never drink much coffee at altitude. Well, the problem is my my body wants caffeine. When I deprived it, I got the headaches. <laughs> so right. I didn't know that. And finally, I can't remember what mountain it was on, Alvarez or something. And they said, that's why you're getting a headache. So I started drinking coffee with mocha, uh, with uh, hot chocolate, mochas, you know, unbelievable. I was, I never had another problem. If yeah, well, little, I, yeah, I, I was think fired up. I think that uh, I, I, I think sometimes people mistakenly uh, uh, feel or, or some people mistakenly understand uh, caffeine as a much more powerful diuretic than it actually is. It's really not caffeine truly is not is not that powerful of, of a diuretic, meaning um, that um, there's really no physiologic reason to withhold caffeine intake if you on on days that you're climbing high, if you are. If, if you are accustomed to drinking coffee, obviously you don't want to start drinking coffee, you know, the, the first day you go to high altitude. But if but if caffeine consumption is part of your normal routine, um, it's always best, I think, to stick with your normal routine. Well, and, I didn't. And yeah, that's right. why I got the headaches. Yeah. Um, and after that, I didn't have headaches. So um, so the just again for the listener the the order um that you that you climbed uh these four uh, uh the four the highest summits was you did kilimanjaro in 2010 you did denali in 2011 we're going to talk more about that in a moment uh you uh did aconcagua in 2013 and then elbrus in 2014 um uh, first, first question, uh, about those, um, well, second question about those, those four, seven summits, uh, Aconcagua, uh, it was the tallest or is the tallest of those four, uh, at just under 23,000 feet, 22,838 feet. Uh, but was, but, but was Aconcagua the most difficult of the four? Oh, no. No. Okay. All right. All right. Don't, don't tell me which of the four. I just, well, let's talk about that. Um, 
<laughs> so that's interesting to me too that 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 the uh, uh, that the tallest was not necessarily the most difficult. Here's what I want to here's what I want to focus on because I think I think there's a really good story in here. Let's talk about Denali, Ken. Um, in our pre-show interview, we um, we we went over uh, we went over this uh, this this climbing resume, if you will, and and uh, you said to me, you said uh, when we were talking about these these uh, four of the seven summits, you said uh, you said Denali 2011. You said research the incident. Uh, okay, so you said that's what that's what you said. So I I, I spent a little time, and. Um, uh, and I, I actually um, I looked up the um, uh, the uh, sort of after action reports um, uh, from uh, from Denali. It's not what they're called. They're actually technically called. These are these are incident reports yeah. um, uh, that are filed by the National Park Service. Uh, Denali right. being uh, being in a national park when there are incidents on Denali. Uh, there's an official sort of government uh, uh, process that happens uh, in which, uh, you know, detailed reports are taken about the incident. So, so interestingly enough, and I want you to talk about this, um, May 2011 on Denali. Um, now, I, I, I should say for the listener, so that the listener knows, uh, your summit uh, day was May 25th. So you were a little bit later in May, but um, uh, Here's what happened uh, on Denali in May of 2011. May 1st, uh, one climber was killed. A, a female climber was killed in an avalanche. May 13th, uh, one climber was killed. Cause of death, uh, undetermined, but likely to be uh, related to exposure. Uh, May 17th, uh, one climber was killed in a fall. Climber, climber fell about 1,000 feet. Um, you were there May 25th. Uh, May 26th, two Two climbers were killed in an avalanche, and then on May 27th, two climbers were killed uh, as a result of a fall. That was seven deaths on Denali in just the month of May. Uh, now you'll, you you can talk about this, but the climbing season uh, in on, in Denali starts, I think, in April, uh, and 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 certainly goes through May. Um, that was an incredibly that was an incredibly dangerous month uh, on Denali. Um, Ken, talk about talk about your experience on Denali. Did you know about those other incidences uh, prior to your arrival in Denali? If so, you know, were, were, were there any special precautions taken? What what was that like to be to be to be on Denali uh, in Alaska uh, in that particular month in that very specific year? Uh, I, I got to tell you, I mean, uh, Denali was like, you know, everybody will tell you that the climb mountains and uh, climb at altitude, Denali's got to be one of the top ones to go that to achieve. And there's no question that when I started climbing at altitude, that that was going to be my focus. Uh, and I, I reached out to you to get physically fit, uh, did some training with you and, uh, uh, which was very helpful, but you know, when you sign the paper to go, you never think at all that you won't come home or somebody else won't come home. Never, never entered my mind. <laughs> 
So when we we immediately almost uh, I was with an RMI group, uh, Renee Mountaineering again. They had uh, I want to think they had eight groups on Denali that season. We were the first group, so it was May fifth. So that was about the earliest you can get on the mountain in, in Denali because of the winter. And uh, right away, we had heard of people getting getting in trouble. But what really happened was we had a perfect uh, series of, you know, our uh, approach to the mountain, uh, to the summit. You know, you, you, you know, you cash high, sleep low, and... We continued to do that until we got to 16.2 and then slept at 14.2. Uh, well, well, we cashed at 16.2, excuse me, and we slept at 14.2. Everything went perfect, and then all of a sudden, everything hit the fan. Uh, Denali winter was moving out, and Denali spring, because they don't have a summer, moves in. And what happened that year was that it was all about the wind. The wind moves the winter out and the spring in. But in this case, in 2011, the winds were horrific. Absolutely horrific. Hurricane force winds, 90 mile an hour winds. Uh, the, the temperatures were minus incredibly low okay probably i'm gonna guesstimate but probably minus 45 minus 50 degrees uh so some of the incidences you talked about chris were really uh bad luck i think one of them the first one was an ice climbing incident and they were uh they were hit by a, a piece of ice uh, i think you said an avalanche but I thought on the mountain when I was there that they got hit with ice. Um, and, you know, that's the, look, when you, when you climb big mountains and, or in their case, I think it was on Hunter, Mount Hunter, they were ice climbing and there's a risk involved. Okay. And unfortunately they sacrificed everything on that one, which is sad. So, um, yeah, we, we, we started hearing about incidences right away. Um, but we, uh, our first, uh, I want to think, I'm, I'm going to guess, Chris, four to six days, we had no incidences at all. We get to 14,000 feet, we cash at 16, we come down. All of a sudden, if you will, the shit hits the fan. I mean, literally. The winds start kicking up. Uh, our lead guy, Mike Walter says, I can see the blocks, the snow, you know, at 17,000 foot camp, you're building your walls with glacial ice. You know, you take a saw out, a glacial saw and you saw blocks out and to protect your tent site. Well, Mike Walter is saying, I can see the blocks being blown off at 17,000 foot. Now it's crystal clear. out. there's no clouds. None. I don't feel an ounce of wind at 14,000 feet, but at 17,000 feet, it's a freaking hurricane. It's, a, it's incredible. And 
I couldn't see because I'm I'm a rookie. I've never been there before, so I didn't know right where to look. But Mike knew right where to look, and he says, "I can see the 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 snow blocks being blown off the mountain. There's people up there. Are you kidding me? I mean, I I'll never forget when we came back down on a, a little trek to acclimatize in the in the bowl." where, you know, a very safe position we were at at 14,000 feet. People had just got down from 17,000 feet from that nightmare. I will never forget a woman's face with two other people that were kneeling. They were just kneeling there, motionless. But you should have seen the horror on their face. Their face were totally red. I mean, I'll never forget it. These things just, they just, it's stamped in your head. And it, it didn't end there. It just got worse and worse and worse. Um, you know, we heard helicopters. They, they had the highest um, rescue attempt in Denali history uh, while we were there at 19,000 feet, Denali Pass, which is the most dangerous spot on Denali um, to the trek to the summit. And, um, you know... All we heard for two weeks was helicopters because I was on the mountain for 26 days. And the average, I think, is 17 days to summit and come off the mountain. So we, we were there. We were there the second longest in the history of RMI uh, treks uh, to get to the summit. Uh, we were blessed to achieve it. But we saw a lot of tragedy along the way. And now the you, one that, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say you. I I thought you mentioned that um, uh, you 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 thought that you may have crossed paths or or met uh, some of the some of the climbers that had that that were involved in some of these incidences. Was that true? Yes, there was an Italian group, and which was really pathetic. These these three Italians, you know, and I, I you know. Believe me, they were just from Italy, okay, folks? I'm not bad about Italian people, but they were Italian. And there was a Japanese group that, you know, they love to film and take pictures and stuff. They were filming these three uh, Italians. And the Italians were really headstrong about trying to get up to the summit as fast as possible. And they used... Chris, you can help me with this. I, I, I may stumble on this one, but like a rope you'd find on a farm. Like um, it's, it's made with just, it's not like a, a mountaineering rope. It wasn't yeah. a mountaineering rope at all. Yeah. And, and they uh, got it around their waist, climbing up. There, there's, no, there's no possibility of safety. And Mike Walter, I'll never forget what he said to me. Well, not me, said to all of us, he said, those three are going to get us all dead. Because the thing is, people don't realize, you know, we sit at home at sea level and we talk about this stuff. It's totally different at elevation. And um, he said, we're going to have to help these people because they're a mess. They, they have no clue. And what happened there was, those guys went up to the summit way too early. This, and this guy was 67 years old. 
the Italian gentleman, and he got delirious from altitude. So the other two said, hey, go back down. Yeah, go back down, Autobahn, which you can't go down without uh, being tethered in and so on and so forth as far as roping in. You can't rope in by yourself. You need a team. So he went, he, he fell 1,500 feet to his death, which yeah, is and, and, yeah, horrible. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually reading the incident report now um, uh, that he, uh, it, the incident report says at, 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 at the time he fell, the gentleman was beginning to traverse from Denali Pass to the 17,200-foot uh, camp along a 45-degree slope of hard, wind-blown snowpack. Correct. He was traveling ahead of his two teammates and was unroped at the time of the fall. Right. What, interestingly enough, you made this point earlier, weather, weather at the time of the accident was clear with relatively calm winds. Correct. But the thing is, Chris, they had acute mountain sickness. The guy was almost delirious. The other two that that the thing that they're not talking about, and that we knew because we were there, and you know, word gets around the camps, right? Those two kept going up to the summit, the other two, and they let him turn around on his own. And that's why he fell down that fifteen hundred feet, because he had no support. Um I mean, with all this, with all this tragedy uh, happening around you, obviously you're. Uh, I mean, not only not only were you uh, as a as a climber, kind of uh, beginning to sort of hear the chatter about this, but clearly your guides uh, were well aware of what was happening on the mountain. Was there ever any discussion uh, that you recall during that time to abort or abandon uh, the expedition, uh, just out of out of fear of generally out of fear of safety? Absolutely not, because I'll tell you why. We felt confident that our guides were going to keep us in a safe situation. And I have never, ever felt anything different than that. I say that today. I felt it then. And, um, but, uh, you know, I think I said this earlier. When you sign the papers to go to a, a trek like Denali and try to achieve the goal, you never expect to see dead bodies. And I certainly didn't, but boy, was that an eye opener for me. And we, we had on summit day, we summited and it's this last group that you you'll see in your incident report. We were on our way down and uh, a female guide with three male clients were go was going up to the summit. And, um, we, we were sitting down, taking a break. We, had, we were exhausted. It was a long day. It was a great place to take a, a break. We were drinking water, having a little bit of food. And they were coming up. And she said, hey, did you guys summit? And we said, yep. She said, ah, oh, congratulations and all this stuff. And uh, when we got up to leave and they went by us, they, they took, we took each other's poles and we hit each other's poles like a clapping type of thing and congratulations. Well, I got down, I was a mess. I mean, I, I was 20 years older than anybody else. And I just went in my tent. I just needed to crash. And the next morning, Mike unzips out of our tent and goes, I hate to say this, but we've had another tragedy this morning. 
And that group that was very cordial to us, very congratulative to us about our summit, uh, the, the, uh, the guide and one of the clients, they had all fallen down the 1,500-foot autobahn, and she passed away, and so did one of the clients. Uh, we, got out of the, we got out of the tent. You could see the two bodies at the bottom of the uh, autobahn. I mean, I wasn't that close, so like it, it, you could see the specks you know, uh, against the snow. And I, I, I just dropped to my knees and bawled my eyes out. Did that experience cause you to pause and 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 think about you know what what it was that you were doing and and whether or not it was worth it in the end? Oh no, I mean I, th that that piece never happened to me. But I will say this: I think it makes you realize how important it is to follow as much protocol, if you will, and, and etiquette on a mountain as you should. You need to respect everything about the mountain because even in the best scenario, something can happen and you could be gone. Um, and I'd love to talk to you about my Peru experience where that's really the only summit I didn't achieve and I'm the one that turned it around. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, so that's a, that's a good, that's a good place for us to pause on, uh, on part one of this two part, this two part podcast. Um, let's pause there. And then on the, and then, and then uh, let's, we'll, we'll pick back up uh, in the next episode. Let's talk about that on, in the next episode. Let's talk about that Peru trip in, in 2016, yep. um, your, uh, your, your, your last expedition, uh, high altitude, high altitude expedition. Um, and then, and then you, you certainly <laughs> as we'll, as we will, as we will learn, you certainly, uh, kept yourself busy, uh, after, uh, that Peru trip. Um, and, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this project called the grid, uh, that you were involved with, uh, and then, and then we'll finish part two, uh, with, a with the discussion about your latest passion, uh, bushwhacking. We'll get into some of the technical elements and features of bushwhacking. Uh, Ken, thank you very much, uh, for, uh, for this discussion, this part one. Uh, I look forward to, uh, to doing part two. Awesome, Chris. Thanks so much. Boy, you could really hear the emotion in his voice when he recounted the story of that recent close call on the Whites. It really does emphasize his point that when bushwhacking in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in the wintertime, the margin for error is zero. Tune in next week for part two of my conversation with Ken. We'll cover his epic expedition to Peru in 2016, something called The Grid, and his latest passion, bushwhacking. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walkable podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage and click the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn and the show's Facebook page at Eat Half Walk Double. So make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, 
The secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.